The drive to Algonquin National Park lasted longer than expected. After running into traffic and making a few wrong turns along the way, we got there late in the afternoon. My dad paid the fees at the front gate and proceeded to drive the remaining kilometers into the park. We eventually found our way to the canoe launch and got out of the van, stretching our legs. My dad and Uncle Steve were looking over the maps, which appeared to have been hand-drawn by park rangers and were encased in clear plastic. I watched as they traced the route we would be traveling. They both agreed that it shouldn't be too complicated to make it to the campground, despite the fact that we had been delayed getting there. A little bit late in the day to start a portaging trip, said a park ranger to my dad as we were packing the last of our camping supplies into the canoes. We're meeting up with some friends who are out there waiting for us. They've already set up camp, so we've just got to make it to the island. Well, be careful. Once it gets dark in Algonquin, it becomes a whole different world. You're all safe now. Thanks, we will. My dad had lectured us the whole way there in a similar fashion, and I couldn't help but grin to hear him getting a taste of his own medicine. Apparently, there were people who got lost in the park every year, never to be seen again. There were bears and wolves, coyotes and other animals in the wilderness, and we would be guests in their domain. My uncle took a seat at the back of one boat while I climbed into the front. My brother was in the other canoe, and my dad climbed in awkwardly, nearly tipping it over in the process. The water was crystal clear and pristine, and I could see minnows swimming in the shallows, frogs and tadpoles. I took a deep breath in, enjoying the crisp fresh air of the northern outdoors, and admired a great blue heron that was resting in the shade nearby. Paddling along the river, we found our way towards a lake which opened up before us, revealing our first glimpse of the pristine beauty of the provincial park. The silence was overwhelming. Away from car mufflers and computer fans and the constant noise of the city, the sense of sudden peace was overwhelming. All I could hear was the sound of my paddle slicing through the calm water and the occasional call of a bird from the surrounding pine forest that engulfed us. Other trees and plant life lined the lake as well. Maples and white birches. Some pale-looking twisted trees sprang from the high cliffs above, growing against all odds, their roots hanging on from rocky outcrops that ranged in rusty reddish hues. My brother Noel and my dad were struggling with their canoe coordination. Noel and I frequently went fishing using the canoes at our cabin when we went up there, so I knew he wasn't the one having issues. It was my dad. My dad had never operated a canoe before, I realized in that moment. Although he'd spoken confidently, saying he knew what he was doing, he was struggling. He had insisted on sitting in the rear of the canoe which is the most crucial position in the boat, since you act as the rudder. And also the primary source of power. Noel was fruitlessly paddling away up front while my dad lackadaisically slapped at the water, sending the boat veering back and forth in a zigzag pattern. His ineffectual efforts eventually caused Noel to get slightly annoyed, and I heard them bickering with each other. I looked back at them trailing far behind us and saw their twisting, Turning path was taking them all over the lake, whereas we were traveling in more or less a straight line. Has your dad ever paddled a canoe before? Steve asked. I think it's been a while by the looks of it. Oh, boy. Maybe he should let Noel steer. Yeah, I'll suggest it at the first stop. We arrived at the first place where we had to portage across a short stretch. For those who aren't familiar, this means you have to carry your canoe across dry land for a little ways to get to the next river or lake so that you can continue your trip. If you have a cooler, luggage, and other items, you have to hike back and forth, sometimes two or three times. This is when it comes in handy to pack light. It took us two trips to bring everything, including the canoes, to the other side. The hike between lakes was about 10 minutes so it wasn't too strenuous. 
That was the easy one, according to the map, my uncle Steve said. The next one is much further away. Great, I thought to myself. I guess it'll be my job to carry the cooler again, too. We got back in the carved wooden boats and started paddling once more. My uncle had the map and was directing us which way to go, while my brother followed my dad in the other canoe. At least he had managed to get him to switch seats, though. As we went along, I saw they were now keeping pace with us, with Noel at the rear of the boat generating more power, and his more experienced paddling keeping them on course. What do you guys know about the legends of the Algonquin? My uncle asked us, making conversation. He and my dad both had a wealth of knowledge on various topics, but things like this were my uncle's specialty. He was an avid outdoorsman and a skilled fisherman, who took a deep interest in Aboriginal culture and the stories they told over generations. Nothing, really, I said. So you've never heard of the Mamegwesi? We all stayed silent and waited for him to explain. My uncle was a bit of a jokester as well, so it was hard to tell if he was kidding sometimes. He liked to put on a straight face and tell an elaborate lie in the form of a story, just to take you along for the ride. So we waited to see if he was trying to fool us before answering yes or no. They're water spirits. Mischievous little buggers. They'll steal your camping supplies if you're not careful. Food, clothes, fishing rods, whatever they like. And they can send your canoe off course, too. You'll be just paddling along like we are now, and the Mamegwesi will send you off on the proper course and you'll wind up lost. If you don't show them the proper respect, that is. Okay, enough with that, Steve. Quit trying to scare the kids with that crap. We're barely going to make it to the campsite before dark as it is. Turn right up ahead here. The map says it's going to be over this way. At my dad's insistence, we veered our boats over in that direction, and I noticed we were in a very shallow section full of reeds and plants. The canoes were almost touching the bottom of the lake. Should we go this way? I don't think that's what the map is saying. My uncle was looking at the narrow river doubtfully. The area we were headed towards looked like a swamp, and mosquitoes were already beginning to land on me and bite my neck as we got closer. My dad and uncle pondered over the map for a while, and my brother and I sat there and slapped at the bugs landing on us. Eventually, they decided to take the route that led us down the shallow, winding river, surrounded by tall reeds. I could tell by the silence of them both that they were not sure if this way was correct. The further we got and the more time passed, the more I noticed the sun had begun to set. Pretty soon, it was almost dark outside, and the water eventually became so shallow that it nearly dried up. The river had turned into a muddy creek and we were forced to turn around. My dad said, uh-oh. We must have gone the wrong way. We'll have to go back to that lake. I think I read the map wrong. My uncle bit his tongue and we paddled back against the current. The lake was empty, and it was completely dark by the time we got back to it. There was no moon that night or anything to light our way. My dad told me to get out a flashlight and cast the beam towards shore, looking for a reflective sign with a symbol for a portage point. Just keep that flashlight pointed at the shore and tell us if you see a reflective sign anywhere, Jordan. This next portage should take us to the lake with the campsite, so there shouldn't be too much farther to go after we find it. My heartbeat was quickening with anxious fear as our canoes traveled along near the shore in almost total darkness. I swung the flashlight beam around to check for deadheads and rocks in our path and told my uncle to veer left or right to avoid hitting things that would have tipped us over. We've got to be careful. Don't want to fall into these waters? There's another legend that the people of this area used to speak of, my uncle said while he paddled. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Trying to distract us from the precarious situation we had gotten ourselves into. The Miss Hidgen Big It's a huge horned serpent. It lives in lakes. It eats people. Okay, Steve. That's about enough. My dad was yelling when my ears caught a sound that I couldn't place. It was steady and persistent, coming from just ahead. Shh, the canoes were picking up speed. I looked back and saw that my dad and uncle weren't paddling. They weren't paying attention at all. They were just arguing with each other about who had taken the wrong turn. You and your ridiculous legends. You're distracting us all with this, this, useless garbage. Don't say that. You're going to upset them. You should apologize. I finally managed to find my voice and I yelled back at them. There's a waterfall up ahead. We're paddling towards a waterfall. They chuckled and told me that was ridiculous. There was no waterfall on the map. Then they began to bicker again, and I started to get extremely nervous. The canoes were moving faster and faster, but nobody was paddling anymore. I was just a kid, so they weren't listening to me. Can't you see what's happening? I yelled at them. Look how fast we're moving. There's a waterfall up ahead. They abruptly stopped arguing, and now the sound of rushing water could be distinctly heard from up ahead. Okay, let's start paddling towards the shore. I think we need to start paddling towards the shore right now. My dad was trying to sound calm, but I could hear the panic in his voice. We all began to paddle as hard as we could. In the dim light, I could barely see anything but the silhouettes of trees all around us and the ink-black water of the lake. Shimmering reflections of stars were floating on the surface of it, speeding past at an increasing rate. We began to make some headway, getting closer to the shoreline, but then suddenly our efforts became futile. We were being sucked in, drawn inextricably towards the waterfall. I looked ahead and saw it, drawing close. The night sky sat serenely above the surface of the turbulent black water, which flowed downwards, disappearing from sight. And when I saw how close it was, I screamed. I saw us go over the edge, and the world tipped sickeningly upside down as I fell. Becoming weightless was a harrowing experience. As for a moment I floated through the air, my screams echoing out into the night. The wolves howled in response. and i descended looking down to see jagged rocks waiting for us below far 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 down below we fell and our screams echoed across the lake i tried to point my feet downwards afraid of what might happen if i impacted the water incorrectly after what felt like forever i landed in the frigid depths below the surface of it hit me with so much force that it nearly knocked the wind out of me and i struggled to breathe as i gasped from the cold sinking downwards the weight of my boots dragged me down and i kicked trying to get them off my feet they felt like cinder blocks and as my head dipped beneath the surface of the water i gulped it in and it went up my nose stinging my sinuses i called out for help but my pleas were drowned by the water once more my head went under again and this time i stayed down longer i struggled to get back to the surface 
I looked around in the murky water and saw a pair of eyes glaring back at me from the depths. The yellow eyes were unblinking and massive, glowing in the darkness. A tipped over canoe was close by when I got to the surface, and I grabbed hold of it and took a gasping breath of air. My dad and brother were okay, I saw. And my uncle had survived the fall, too, although his head sustained a large gash and he appeared dazed and hurt. You need to apologize, Dave, my uncle told my father, sounding drunk now, his words slurred and difficult to understand. You've disrespected the spirits here. Apologize before they kill us all. What? Those stories you were told to scare the kids? Are you still talking about that thing? Suddenly, I felt something wrap around my ankle and, although I held onto the canoe as firmly as I could, I felt myself being dragged down. There was no time to scream, but I tried to take a breath of air before being pulled down below. My uncle's hand reached down and managed to grab mine, and he held onto me for dear life. I felt like I would be pulled in two as the thing from the depths tore at my leg, yanking me downwards. As the time passed beneath the water, my need to breathe became more urgent. I began to thrash and kick my legs, trying desperately to free myself from the thing that was pulling me down. My heartbeat was loud and fast in my ears and I looked in terror to see the yellow eyes of the thing were very close now. It was coming towards me and in the murky black water I could just barely make out its massive horned head and gaping maw. Huge fangs and a split tongue could be seen in the dim light as the snake came face to face with me. The massive beast was so large it could swallow me whole, I realized, and I cringed and waited for that to happen, momentarily resigned to my fate. But then a light shone down from the surface. A bright torch lamp made the snake cringe and recoil in fear. It loosened its grip on my leg and I felt my uncle pull me towards the surface. My vision was clouding red and black, and as I began to feel like I was passing out, I broke through the surface of the water and was pulled up onto a large canoe. Our friends who had been at the campsite waiting for our arrival had heard us screaming as we went over the waterfall. The campsite was close by and they had quickly gotten in their boat to come rescue us once they realized what had happened. If not for them, we would have been dead. At least, that's how it appeared. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so, so sorry. My dad was repeating the words over and over. It's not your fault, Dave. These things happen, his friend Randy was saying as we paddled over towards the campsite. At least nobody got hurt, right? That's the important thing. My uncle rubbed his bleeding forehead and rolled his eyes at me. Thanks, Uncle Steve, I said to him quietly. He nodded and said, no problem, kiddo. I saw the horned serpent down there, Uncle Steve. I think you're right. We should probably be respectful of the creatures around here. I don't want to get on that guy's bad side again. He smiled, his eyes shining red for just a second in the moonlight, and I noticed his face appeared different, like someone else entirely. A being who had been sent to help us, both ancient and wise. Just wait until I tell you the tale of the great rabbit. I've got plenty of stories, each with a lesson. For those who will listen and who have ears to hear. He put two fingers up over his head, making little bunny ears, and smiled. It was just supposed to be a typical camping trip with my scout troop. My friends and I were so excited. Davey, Kevin, and I we always looked forward to these camping trips, and the yearly fall camp out was one of the best. We took a bus to Grayson Falls, a huge state park with so many lakes to swim in, trails to hike, and several caves to explore. All the local scout troops would be there, ten in all, and we would meet in the Starfall campground for the jamboree. There would be canoeing and races and s'mores and, of course, the annual scary story contest. 
We had been crafting our stories since the last jamboree, and this year, we were ready to take that prize. As the bus pulled up to the campsite, we all spilled out of it excitedly. We were the first to arrive. The others were getting there tomorrow, but Scoutmaster Larry had wanted us to get there early to get the best spots. As I stood in the center of the campground, watching the other scouts mill about, going about their preparations, I couldn't help but soak in the sounds and smells of the surrounding forest. Grayson State Park had always been my favorite place to camp, and it was chiefly because it exuded this energy of safety and adventure. It was a well-maintained park, with the park rangers keeping the animals in check and the forest peeled back from the areas where hikers and campers stayed. Even so, it wasn't too hard to imagine a wolf or a bear watching from the trees, just waiting to pounce on the unexpected. It wasn't too far-fetched to think that something mysterious or unknown could be lurking in those woods. We set up our tent a little further back than the others. Scoutmaster Larry had given us a set area where we could pitch our tents, and we had set up our own tents at the edge of this. We wanted to feel like real scouts, like trailblazers, and I imagined us as old-timey explorers as Kevin and I set up our tents. Davy had disappeared, and I assumed he was getting water or firewood or something. No sooner had I set up my tent, though, than Davy hissed at us from the woods. Nice campsite, but follow me if you girls want to do some real camping, he said, motioning us into the woods. But, Kevin started, Scoutmaster Larry said. Who cares what Scoutmaster Larry said? Do you want to camp or what? We looked at each other. I did feel pulled by adventure, and Kevin, despite being kind of a wet blanket, seemed to feel it too. We nodded, and Davy set out his plan. We would leave our tents here as a decoy since they were already set up, and move off into the woods. Davy knew of a place where he had set up his tent where we could do some actual camping for the night, away from the adults and other scouts. It would be like camping on our own, being explorers and roughing it for real. But what if they look for us? Kevin asked. Then, Davy just waves his hand at the question, we'll go back to eat, and then after dinner, we'll head back to the site. We'll wake up before anyone gets up and stirring tomorrow and be back in the camp before they notice anything. I had to admit, it wasn't a bad plan. We would strike the camp after tonight and rejoin the jamboree tomorrow as the others arrived. No one would miss us for just one night, not with so many other scouts around. Kevin and I agreed to go look at the campsite first, wanting to see where he had put it before we committed to staying the night. And so we plunged into the forest, Davy leading the way. We took no trail, our feet following new ground as he led us to the campsite. As we went, I felt as though I could feel something watching us. It was still early afternoon and the forest was alive with the sounds of nature, but this tickling on the back of my neck felt a little sinister somehow. I turned to glance around as we went, but I saw nothing more dangerous than a blue jay or a squirrel. I decided I was being silly, and caught up with Kevin and Davy as they headed for our secret campsite. Even Kevin had to admit that the campsite was pretty cool. It was set in a small clearing and was complete with a fire pit, which led me to believe that other scouts had used this site before. His tent almost looked out of place here, and I could just imagine scouts before us sleeping under the stars in sleeping bags. Davy asked us what we thought, and I could see that both of us were sold on the idea of a rustic campout in the woods. We both agreed to come back after dinner, and so we returned to the group. The rest of the day went by fairly uneventfully. We returned to find a hike about to begin, so we tagged along as Scoutmaster Larry showed us nature's glory. We were a little nervous that they might happen upon our campsite, but the hike took us around the nearby creek and up to a natural waterfall that fed from the lake nearby. As we returned, Scout leader Mark had our dinner cooking over a small fire near the counselor's tents. We set about preparing for the meal, 
and soon we were all stretched out on the grass eating campfire stew and hardtack bread. As we ate, Scoutmaster Larry laid out the day's events for tomorrow's jamboree. It would be a whole day of canoe races, decathlons, contests, and all of it capped off by the scary story contest at the s'more roast. All of us were chattering quietly as we headed off to bed, the sun setting behind us as the three of us pretended to head to our tents. As the sun set low, we moved into the woods and made our way to the campground. As we followed Davy into the woods, I began to hear something strange in the surrounding green. It started as an overriding noise, making Kevin and Davy hard to hear, even at close proximity. Davy was too excited to even acknowledge it at first, but I saw Kevin shooting furtive looks into the surrounding woods. The sounds of the forest seemed to be higher than I had ever heard them, and the deeper we went, the louder they seemed to become. The birds sounded like a flock, squawking and chattering animatedly to each other, and many of them sounded like species not native to the region. The scouts are taught to identify local birds, it's for a badge, and many of these sounded different from the finches and quail you usually hear this time of year. I heard deer grunting and the yowls of cats, the growl of a bear, and even the throaty howl of a wolf. The strangest thing of all wasn't the sounds or the presence of non-native animals, though. The strangest part was that each cry was exactly the same. Same sound, same volume, same everything. The others could hear it too, that much was obvious, but they were pretending they couldn't. We could all hear the sounds of animals, all of them too loudly. Kevin was starting to cry. Davy kept insisting that once we made it to the campsite, everything would be okay. He was pulling Kevin along by now, and Davy's hand was wrapped around his wrist. Kevin was nearly frozen with fear and I could see his eyes shining as he was half dragged through the trail. When we reached the tent, we all went straight in, not daring to even start the fire we had built up to use that night. We huddled in our tent, Kevin hyperventilating, as Davy and I peeked out through the flap. The forest was still very loud and very populated, but it seemed to stop at our campsite. It was like a song heard from behind a door, you know the song, but the words are muffled. We watched the woods, both of us agreeing that we couldn't go back. We would have to stay here tonight, and Davy said we should sleep in shifts. There's definitely something out there. If we sleep in shifts, we can catch it if it tries to sneak up on us. I agreed, but for the moment, the two of us just watched the woods. The noises were moving away, like a troop of actors on the move and Kevin came to join us as well. We spent an hour watching the woods, and I was surprised when I looked over to find Kevin snoring in a corner. The adrenaline was kicking in, and we were all getting tired. I told Davy I was going to lie down as well, but I just couldn't get comfortable. I was so tired, but my mind wouldn't shut off. I lay there, angrily tossing, for what felt like hours, and that was probably why I heard them. I had just started to doze when the first of the voices scraped across my senses. I woke up to find Davy and Kevin stirring, woken up by the voices from outside the tent. They were familiar voices. All of the campers and scoutmasters we knew called our names. They were out in the woods at night searching for us, and their voices clattered through the dark wilderness in a jarring way. They were too loud somehow, disturbing the perfect silence of the night forest. They also seemed wrong somehow, like the animal sounds from earlier. Each of them had the exact same name, called in the exact same way, again and again. Davy opened the tent, looking out into the darkness, looking for flashlights. The forest was still dark, the crickets and the night birds alarmingly silent. The quiet of the night was disturbed only by the yelling searchers, and the sound of their voices was making my skin crawl. Kevin seemed shaken as the voices grew closer and closer. Maybe we should just go to them, guys. They're going to be mad if they find our tent out here. 
We can just say we were out here using the bathroom. His voice shook as he said it, and I could tell he was getting ready to bolt. Kevin was the type who feared getting into trouble more than silly things like possible death. Davy turned away from the flap to look at him. Are you crazy? If we stay right where we are, they'll never find us. Kevin, however, didn't seem so sure. As we stood at the tent flap, watching the woods and listening to the voices, Kevin made a sound like a wounded cat made a break for the woods. He shoved past us and went running into the brush, yelling that he was sorry for making them look for him. We heard him apologizing until his yells were suddenly cut off. He was stammering apologies one minute, and the next he was silent as he was grave. Davy and I stood looking out into the woods, shuddering in the sudden silence that held sway across the dark green world. Then, as suddenly as they had stopped, the voices began again. We could hear Kevin's voice amongst them, calling for us to come out. Davy, I said, both of us still looking out into the woods, my eyes having just realized something my brain should have a long time ago, if they're out here looking for us, why don't they have flashlights? Davy contemplated this, and it seemed to scare him just as much as it scared me. We went back inside, huddling in our tent as the voices grew closer and closer. Davy zipped up the doorway and walked backwards into the suddenly flimsy canvas tent. He seemed afraid to turn his back on the doorway and just sort of stood in the middle as he kept his eyes fixed on the secured opening. I hunkered down in my sleeping bag. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Listening to the voices call our names as they came closer and closer. Davy shuddered, cocking his head like a dog who hears a noise. He suddenly took a step back towards the door, and I yelled at him to get away from there. I hunkered down in my own bag, 
hearing the voices calling our names, and my tears were wet as they slid nakedly down my face. We were trapped out here, alone, with no one to help us. Why hadn't we just stayed with the others? I sank deeper into my bag, hoping I would wake up to find out that this was just a dream and feel silly for letting it scare me. I opened my eyes as the zipper slid open. I looked out to find Davy standing in the doorway, looking out as the voices seemed to surround our tent. I begged him to close it, begged him to come back, but he only glanced back at me, almost apologetically. The moon cast his face in stark relief, turning him into a carved totem, and then he turned and stepped out into the night. He left the tent open, and I heard him scream as whatever was calling to us got him. His scream was high and long, cutting through the monotonous calling like an axe through a melon. It was cut off at the peak of its terror, however, and the sound of its ending made me bunch down in my sleeping bag all the more. The next time I heard his voice was when it joined that frightening chorus, all of them now calling for me. I put my hands over my ears, trying to block them out. I wanted them to stop. I wanted this to all be over, and as I sat shuddering, I suddenly became aware that I couldn't hear anything. I pulled my hands away from my ears, slowly at first, and heard nothing but the silence of the outside night. I looked at the flap of the tent and found only the soft rustle of the fabric against the zipper as I began to worm out of the warm embrace of the sleeping bag. I got about halfway out when suddenly they were all around me. Their hands pushed at the walls of the tent, their faces were canvas-covered masks as they tried to press their way inside. I could see their terrible features and hear their ragged breathing as they all shoved at the thin barrier of my tent. There were so many of them, adults, children, animals, and others who resembled nothing so much as skeletons with vaguely human shapes. A shadow fell onto the floor of my dwelling, and I looked to see one framed in the open doorway. I zipped my sleeping bag shut then and hunkered down at the bottom, a snail trapped inside its shell. Outside, I could hear the monotonous voices surrounding me again, moving in for the kill as I shuddered in the bottom of my sleeping bag. When I heard the metallic sound of a zipper, I knew I was done for. The creature sank its face into the mouth of the sleeping beast, and I cowered as its bony face leered at me. As it opened its mouth, it screamed my name, lunging at me with its bony teeth, its pale white skull luminescent in the darkness of the bag. I died with the sound of my own name, fighting against the rippling scream that rode up my throat. The scouts around the fire looked at me as though I was from another planet. The campfire was the only sound, the logs crackling merrily, as the collected troops sat looking at me as I stood in the story circle. Even some of the scoutmasters looked a little rattled by the story, but, slowly, they started to clap. Scoutmaster Larry clapped the loudest, shaking his head as he approached, now I see why you wanted to go last. That would have been a hard story to top. I think we can all agree which story wins this year's Jamboree Scary Story Contest. The applause picked up then, and Davy slugged me in the arm as I sat back down. I can't believe you kept that to yourself all week. I thought Kevin was going to pee in his pants. Was not, Kevin said petulantly, though he looked a little pale nonetheless. I smiled. Storytelling was something I was good at, and it was always nice to be recognized for my talents. I let my mind slip into the woods around us, hearing the call of the night birds and the whimper of the wind. Perhaps there was something like that out in the woods of the state park. Who could say what lurked in the deep pockets that surrounded the areas made for man? I felt myself shiver a little as the wind pushed a sound across my senses, a lonesome sound that sounded eerily like my name. My audience might not be the only ones having trouble sleeping tonight. I was a senior girl guide ranger for two years in Canada. There's a private lake out near the mountains that we would take the younger girls to, 
as the lake was shallow and great for canoe lessons. I never liked the sight, as it was more of a swamp and therefore always smelled like rotten eggs, but it was fun to go up there with my unit. We were all really good friends, and an odd cast of characters in general. Despite our differences in interests, one thing we all shared was our belief in the paranormal. Particularly myself, my sister, and our resident witch, R, who is pretty much impossible to scare. Anyway, about a year ago, we were out there for our annual backpacking trip. There were about seven of us, minus the leaders. We were tenting in a meadow that was about a five-minute walk from the bathrooms and a ten-minute walk from the boat launch slash main recreational area. The woods in the area are super dense, and at night, it's pretty much impossible to see two feet ahead of you. On our second night, halfway through the trip, I got up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom. Since we are in bare country and it's also pitch black, I woke my sister to come with me. The path to the bathrooms was narrow and dark, even with our flashlights. As we walked, I started to get increasingly paranoid that someone was following us through the trees. My sister had noticed it too. There was brush moving somewhere in the distance, like something was walking next to us as quietly as possible. By the time we made it to the outhouse, I was well and truly scared out of my mind. As I was waiting for my sister to be done, standing in the clearing with my light out, the thing that we had heard grew closer. This weird snuffling noise, almost like a bear, started emanating from the trees around me. Now I know what a bear sounds like. Whatever that was, it was not a bear. It sounded more like labored breathing, as if the person breathing had had their throat shredded by a weed whacker. It was wet and loud, and getting very close. I banged on the outhouse door, yelling for my sister to get out, and when she did, her eyes were just as big as I imagined mine were. We sprinted back to camp, relying on our dim flashlights and muscle memory to get us back safely. That noise followed us all the way back. In the morning, at breakfast, I asked her if she had heard anything weird the previous night. She nodded, and when I recounted the story to her, she confirmed that she had heard the noise too. Concerned, we went to our leaders, who were talking to the leaders of a guide group staying down on the other side. The guide leaders were talking about packing up early because of a weird noise that had occurred sometime during the night and scared all the girls. Creepy, right? It gets worse. That day, we were supposed to be marking exit trails with flagging tape. We'd split off into groups of four, and although I didn't experience anything particularly out of the ordinary, my sister did. Here's what she told me, their path took them up a hill we call the ridge. The ridge is the highest point in the camp, and should you struggle your way up to the top, you will be rewarded with a gorgeous view of the whole area. As they were standing there, one of the girls suddenly froze up and stared down the hill at something. My sister and the two other girls turned to ask what she was looking at, only to be struck speechless by what they saw. There was something humanoid watching them from the meadow. Tall, thin, staring straight at them. It was too bright to look at, almost painful in its light. It watched them for a moment longer, and then they blinked, and it was gone. To this day, we still don't know what it was. But whatever had stalked us that night in the woods, it had not been there to play. I took a job as a fire lookout, but I'm the one being watched. There were four of us to start with each perched in a remote watchtower, our only contact with the outside world through a ham radio and the guy who delivered Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. ...beer and food every two weeks. To make sure none of us rolled an ankle or got mauled by a mountain lion while on patrol, we did two checks a day, one at 6 a.m. and one at 6 p.m. Things headed south right after Luke, the ranger in Tower 4, didn't report in for the morning check. Tower 4, come in, the station operator repeated. Do you read me? Over. No response. The checks were a big deal. Huge, even. If any of us missed too many in a row, the station would deploy a team to make sure nobody had died and there'd be hell to pay for stirring a panic over nothing. Then Phil from Tower 1 said, Operator, the storm might be messing with Luke's signal. I can see it rolling in from the west. Over. He wasn't kidding. When I woke up that morning, the far horizon mountains were gone, swallowed by black thunderclouds and thick mist. Hitch from Tower 2 added, that or he had himself another celebration last evening. I snorted. I'd always liked Hitch. She had this nasally southern twang that I dug. We'd camped together earlier that year when a ten-year-old girl got lost in the woods. It took three days to find the poor kid. She turned up caked with dirt and delirious from drinking mud water. Hitch wasn't wrong, by the way, Luke had a nasty habit of missing checks on account of a hangover. He was already on thin ice. I pushed the transceiver and said, oh yeah, the rest of us had a party in Tower 4 last night, Hitch. Didn't you get the invite? Over. Sure I did. She pronounced it sure as sure. I simply didn't want to share a cramped cabin with three horny losers who hadn't showered in eight months. I could hear the irritation in the operator's voice when he said, all right, that's enough. Keep the channel open. We'll see if the signal clears up by this evening. Over and out. With the checks done, my time was my own, and that was just how I liked it. After some coffee and breakfast, I threw the rifle over my shoulder and exited the cabin. My tower, Tower 3, stood in a small clearing surrounded by 50 miles of forest. There was a steel gate to keep bears out two-thirds of the way down the column staircase and surrounding the base was a 10-foot-high chain-link fence. To the south, a downward-sloping trail led to the other towers. Most days I'd hike the path as far as the nearby lake, but since that morning it'd be hidden behind the fog, I'd trek through the forest instead. About two miles out, after vaulting over the rotted trunk of a lodgepole pine, my left foot sank into a puddle of ooze. I was standing in blood. As I dragged my boot through the dirt, I noticed a series of red stains leading up to a pine tree and looked up. A dead thing sagged around a crooked branch. I could make out tattered flesh and blue-purple guts, badly twisted out of shape and fluttering in the breeze. I wasn't sure what kind of animal it was. Or had been, even. In all my years, I'd never seen anything torn apart so viciously. Hell. Could a person have done it? Sometimes we got a few crazies drifting through. In the 80s, a weird cult even took up residence. Sixteen folks lived out of a filthy camper van parked down by the lake and worshipped an old, native god who, they claimed, inhabited the forest. As I stood there open-jawed, blood dripped into my mouth, disgustingly warm against my tongue. The kill was fresh. That meant whatever was stashed in the corpse couldn't be far away. I spat, my saliva coming out mostly pink, then I rushed back to the tower, kicking up puffs of dust, painfully aware of how loud my feet sounded. There was a gust of wet air, followed by this eerie stillness. Every bird for miles around stopped chirping all at once. Or maybe I only imagined they had. And then there was a huge crash. Wood splintering, somewhere close. I ran fast, trampling through saplings and vines. 
And even as I sprinted along like a man being hunted, a tranquil voice in the back of my mind insisted there was nothing to worry about, that I just had an overactive imagination. But still, you'd better get back to the tower as quickly as possible. Just to be safe, I locked the fence and gate and rushed into the cabin, where I rinsed out my mouth and splashed cold water across my face. And then, staring at my reflection, I started to laugh. What sort of ranger gets spooked by a dead animal? In the safety of the watchtower, my pulse crawled back down. I kicked my feet up and spent the next few hours trying not to picture the carcass. The operator came back over the radio a little after six. His transmission sounded faint and garbled, which wasn't unusual when conditions were so poor. Tower 1, report in. Over. No reply. I pictured Phil stumbling across tangled guts outside his tower. 20 seconds passed, then my mental image shifted to Phil suspended from a tree, his intestines swinging back and forth like a pendulum. In retrospect, those remains had appeared somewhat, Tower 1, are you there? Over. The operator's voice had moved past irritation and onto concern. I considered mentioning the incident, but what would I have said? Sir, I stumbled across a dead animal and almost emptied my bladder. Get a team of rangers out here, stat. Hitch would never let me live it down. Operator, this is Tower 2, Hitch said. The storm's getting worse, I can't even see the cabin through my binoculars. I doubt old Phil will be getting much traction on his radio. Over. A tightness in my chest that I hadn't even realized was there eased off. Phil was fine, we just hit a patch of nasty weather, that's all. I realized the operator was waiting on me and said, Tower 3, reporting in. Over. Hitch said, busy daydreaming about me again, Tower 3? Face facts, it's never going to happen. Over. Come into Tower 4, the operator said, ignoring her. Do you copy? Over. He tried again, sounding considerably more anxious, and was met with silence. We were two rangers down. It took the operator a few minutes to decide what to do next. Okay, let's see if the storm clears up by morning. If not, we'll send you folks to check that all's okay with Luke and Phil. Keep the channel open in the meantime. Over and out. Damn. He'd most likely send me to Tower 4 since I was closest. It would only take an hour by Jeep, but between the mist and the corpse, I'd started to feel a tad anxious. Scared, even. Putting the thought out of my head, I threw on some music, made dinner, had a few beers to take the edge off, and then turned in early. With any luck, the storm would ease up by morning. A little after midnight, I was woken by bumps and thuds outside. I lay absolutely still and listened carefully. The sound of heavy footsteps circling the tower even though I was safe up in the cabin, I slipped on my jacket and grabbed a rifle off the wall. Noises outside usually meant a bear had sniffed out food and came to investigate. A quick warning shot would send it running. I flicked on the cabin lights and strained my neck to look down. Beneath me, the world was masked by heavy fog. It felt like being adrift at sea. A few minutes passed. The sound circled me once, twice. All I could make out were a few isolated treetops. When it became clear whatever was down there wouldn't wander off by itself, I stepped out onto the walkway, and the second I did, the thing halted. A soft rain fell cold. There was a silhouette of a dark, out-of-shape figure just beyond the fence. I surrounded powerful floodlights at the base of the tower, but, in truth, I was scared to flick them on, electing to fire blindly instead. In all the time it would take to blink, the shape tore into the forest. The pine trees rocked back and forth. I heard a ruffle of feathers, birds taking flight, eager to get the hell away from whatever was beneath them. 
I'd never seen a bear move so damn fast. Hell, I'd never seen anything move that fast. I waited 15 minutes, just to make sure it didn't return, then I went inside and slept. Or tried to, even. The next morning, clouds the size of Wyoming had piled up overhead. Both towers 1 and 4 missed the checks, again. Part of me wanted to mention my encounter, but I could already hear Hitch's sarcastic response. Ah, the whittle shadow spooks you? I got a nightlight you can borrow preempting my deployment to Tower 4, I said, maybe we should wait and see if the weather clears up by midday? Over. How about you close your trap and let me call the shots, the operator suggested. He was panicked. Two rangers not reporting in, one for more than 24 hours? There'd be a few raised eyebrows back at the station, all right. By now, the entire skyline had been painted gray. All I could see through the window were raindrops the size of gumballs. It was a small miracle my radio still picked up a signal. Okay Hitch, think you can make it to Tower 1 and scope things out? Over. Sure can, she replied, over. Perfect. And Tower 3, what's it like on your end? Think you could manage the drive out to 4? Over. I don't know if that's such a good idea, I said. Visibility isn't great, over. Hitch cut in with, operator, maybe I should swing by Tower 3 and drop off an emergency teddy bear. Over. For the first time in a long while, I wasn't enamored by Hitch's charm. Tower 3, could you make the damn drive? Yes or no? Over. The operator enunciated each word carefully, like he was scolding a damn toddler. What was I supposed to say? An animal got close to my tower last night, so now I'm too busy hiding under my bedsheets. I sighed. Yeah, I can make it. Over. All right then. Check that the guys are okay and then report back as soon as you can. Over and out. Almost tasting the blood again, I hung up the transceiver. But, scared as I was, I had an obligation to check on Luke, he might have been lying half dead in a ditch crying out for help. I slid my handgun into my holster, threw the rifle over my shoulder, and then descended the tower hovering at the gate to study the clearing a few times. Then, eventually, I hopped inside the jeep. There was a booming roar of thunder as I started the engine. Lighting illuminated the fog, briefly. And for just a moment, the rearview mirror was filled with a pair of red eyes, glowing like flashlights. I whipped around just in time to glimpse a bestial shape slipping into the haze. My heart jackhammered against my chest as I fumbled for the rifle. In the five minutes I kept the barrel pointed at the tree line, there were no sounds or signs of movement. Were my eyes playing tricks? I sped along the patched and bumpy trail, bouncing around in the seat, the suffocating canopy closing around me. As the vehicle struggled over a ridge, thunder boomed again, then the forest brightened up revealing silhouettes darting between trees. Intruders I slammed on the brakes so hard my chest got thrown into the steering wheel. The world dissolved back into gloom before I could grab my pistol. I cracked the window and listened carefully. Silence. Was it a herd of deer, maybe? The noise of the jeep probably spooked them. Forty minutes later, after following the trail up into the rocky hilltops, I reached Tower 4, tucked against the mouth of a sprawling mountain range that was completely blotted out. Pulling up, the headlights revealed a down fence. My stomach contracted. Still, no need to panic any more than I already was, fences collapse all the time, especially after storms. I stepped out of the jeep. The rain pounded down hard and heavy, numbing my face, and the cutting breeze from the north was like a breath along the back of my neck. With my rifle pointed across the slope until the very last second, I retreated towards the tower's staircase. I leaned into every corner, 
taking stock of the next section before making a turn, not entirely sure what I expected to find. Another pile of remains, maybe. A third of the way up the steps, the gate lay wide open. That was a bad sign. Terrible, even. Keeping the gate locked at all times is the first lesson in Park Ranger 101. Somebody would have to be in a hell of a rush to leave it open. But then again, this was Luke I was dealing with. Maybe he took the gate about as seriously as the checks. I closed and locked it behind me, to make sure nothing else could get into the tower. Or get out, whispered a quiet voice in the back of my mind. If something besides Luke was waiting for me up in the cabin, I'd be like a rat in a cage, I waved the thought aside, rounded another corner, and then heard a deep bellow echo through the mountains, gradually rising in volume. I gritted my teeth and kept climbing. From there, things only got worse. The cabin door was wide open, busted off its hinges. Luke? I shouted my voice so high I barely recognized it. I took a few steps forward, felt the glass crunch beneath my boot, and then stopped and slowly glanced around. On the far side of the cabin, the window was busted, exploded inward, and most of the equipment was tipped over on its side. Clearly, there'd been a struggle. But whatever caused the glass to break was long gone. I felt slightly relieved until I remembered I'd come to check on Luke. A ranger had been missing for 24 hours and their tower was completely trashed. I had to call it in. At least now the station will send out a crew to do a search and rescue. The radio transceiver dangled over the edge of a table sitting askew. When I reached down to grab it, my eyes almost bulged out of their sockets. The transceiver was there. Along with something I didn't expect to see, it was a hand, just a hand, severed at the wrist and still clutching the transceiver, suspended over a patch of floor crusted with blood. In my mind's eye, I could see Luke discovering a corpse, one wrapped around a tree trunk and flapping like a pile of tattered rags, then sprinting back to the tower, so terrified he forgot to close the gate. Or maybe something had chased him up the column staircase and there was no time. And then, a half second before he could put out a call for help, two red orbs the size of fists lit up the wall of grey beyond the window. There it was again, another bellow, much clearer now, coming from directly beneath the cabin. It was followed by a series of bumps and thuds, the sound of hard feet resonating against the steps. Next thing, there was a metallic clang which made the whole structure tremble. Whatever was down there had just rammed the gate. There was a second thud. I struggled to maintain balance as the light fixtures died. I plucked the hand off the transceiver, feeling a queasy mixture of disgust and terror, and failed to pick up a signal on any channel. There were no reinforcements coming to save the day. The creature charged one last time. Now blinded with sweat, my feet tangled together, and down I went. Would the steel bars hold out until the storm passed? Sure didn't seem like it. Trembling, I clambered up and pointed my rifle at the door. The only way I saw myself leaving Tower 4 was between a powerful set of jaws. When I was 14-ish, I led the Cub Scouts on a day hike, you stay a little ahead of the pack to spot problems, but still in visual range. I was walking along at the front when I turned a bend and saw a large brown mass of hair bent over and started hearing grotesque crunching noises. I froze so hard I may have died for a few seconds. I turned to the guy behind me who started to say something. But when he saw my face he went silent and turned pale. I point back the way we came and say, walk in a strangled whisper. He does so, and the guys coming up see our expressions and immediately turn around and try to run. Again, I say in this weird whisper slash scream slash choke walk. It filters back and I have to say quiet at one point. 
All I recall after that is a short time later is yelling run back to the camp. I stayed in the rear with a makeshift firebomb handkerchief shoved partway into an open white gas canister and a Zippo staring backwards while trying to run I just recall thinking please be scared of fire. Everyone made it back okay, but it was chaos since we had Cub Scouts show up about 5 minutes ahead of us with the tail, the guy who stays in the back, who had no idea why they fled in terror. We ended up running into a hastily assembled and armed militia of adults at the trailhead. I ran behind them and apparently said bear, big bear in an oddly bland tone before collapsing into a shaking slash coughing fit. Adrenaline is a hell of a drug. Got an award for more or less not using the Cub Scouts as a shield, and handling it well got a small chewing out for cursing, f you father slash reverend slash whatever dickwad. There was a damn bear, it was wholly justified. Everyone was okay, and I got a good story. Oh yeah, that happened in Washington State, US, within a few hours of the Canadian border.